Well, good evening. Uh, I am, I think I, everyone, most folks were here last week. I'm Lindsay Monica Vosigam, and this is the second week of Nahum. So we'll be finishing up the book of Nahum. And I did put a brief outline on the board. Um, it's really brief, and I don't have anything cute on it, uh, in part because the title that I have on my notes for tonight is, And He Will By No Means Clear the Guilty. And somehow I didn't feel like that should be on the board with a smiley face. So I didn't put it up there. Uh, but we'll, you know, it's all right. It'll, it'll all make sense by the end. Well, y'all, tonight, as we start, so last week I told y'all about how I found um, a lovely little bookshop in um, Hollywood, of all places. And so kind of along those lines, I actually have another confession that uh, I think probably further solidifies my, um, my nerddom. Um, I love poetry. Like, love it. It is one of my favorite things. Um, it, I am one of those people. I love words. I love rhythm. I love imagery. I love how if you pick just the right word, you can communicate so much. And if you read it a different time, it actually communicates something else. And it's just amazing to me. Like I absolutely love poetry. So when I learned that I was going to be reading or teaching Nahum, I sat down and I read it. And I geeked out a little bit. I was like, this is amazing. It is, like, the poetry of this is absolutely astounding. The imagery, the words, everything. So much so that I actually, like, when, I, when all the Bible study teachers, we all got together with Brian and we're kind of talking through some things, some of the others were expressing discomfort, or, un, um, sorry, I'm talking about words and I can't even get my words out. Um, but they were, they were, um, they were sharing that they were uncomfortable by Nahum and some of this, and I was, I had just gone so far off on the poetry side of things, I didn't even notice um, all of the, the judgment and all of that. Now, I have certainly come to that place, but, but that's kind of where I am. So I bring that up just to, to bring us into this a little bit of, well, so this is an English class. Yes, this is an incredible poem, because this is almost entirely in verse. But why do we read a book like Nahum? Why do we read something like this that is so filled with destruction and filled with judgment and hard things? And, um, and, and I think w w it's good for us to consider that because a lot of people would be really tempted just to say, let's just skip the Old Testament, let's go to the, the, the Gospels. Let's go to the New Testament where we can read it and we know what it's telling us and we know exactly what we're supposed to do. This is not quite so easy as that. Um, but I think to help us frame this as we, as we dive into a challenging passage tonight, um, there was a really great quote from an Old Testament professor at Calvin Theological Seminary named Michael Williams. And this is what he says. To, to avoid the neighborhood of the prophets altogether, so prophets like Nahum, like Habakkuk, some of these others that we're reading, to avoid the neighborhood of the prophets altogether and to drive straight on through the Gospels without stopping, would be shortchanging ourselves as much as flying to France without learning any French. So as we study books like Nahum, what it does for us is it actually teaches us the language of the gospel so that when we come to the gospel, when we come to the New Testament books, we actually understand the words that we're reading. We actually can understand the depth of it. Um, they help us translate 
what we see in the gospel. So if we were to take something just really basic from Acts 16.31, this phrase I'm about to read is such a common phrase. We hear um, Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, when we come to passages like Nahum, like Nahum 2 and 3, it'll help us understand a little bit of saved from what? How are we assured in that saving? What does this mean really? Like not just the surface, but really as we go deep into it. And so tonight, that's actually, we're going to use that to help us frame as we walk through Nahum 2 and 3. And so on my outline. So the first thing that we'll do is we're actually going to, we'll spend some time, we'll review briefly, and then we're going to spend some time actually walking through the passage, kind of understand what's there, because it is poetic. Um, There's a lot going on in there that I think it helps just to walk through a couple of times. And then after that, what what we're going to actually do is take just a couple different passages from the New Testament and see how the book of Nahum actually helps us interpret what that's talking about, helps give us a greater depth of understanding and depth of meaning for those particular, um, for those particular scripture passages. So, brief review, just to give us kind of back where we are with the book of Nahum. So Nahum, written by Nahum, otherwise unknown prophet, Um, His name means comfort, which we saw was actually kind of cool, how Isaiah actually had a beautiful prophecy that started with Nahum, Nahum, or comfort, comfort my people. He is writing about Nineveh, which is the glorious capital of Assyria. This is about 100 years again after Jonah had finished uh, his call for repentance, and in the time between... Jonah's call for repentance. Last week we talked about how between that time and the writing of Nahum, we actually saw that repentance was very short-lived because about 20 years after Jonah, we see Assyria take out Israel or the northern kingdom um, in spectacular fashion, um, a horrible siege, and some other things mixed in with that. You can look in, I believe it's 2 Kings. Um, We also saw, we actually read a little piece of a passage last week of how Assyria then went on to threaten threaten Judah and almost overtake it until the Lord stepped in and wiped out 185,000 soldiers in a single night um, underneath the, uh, the leader of Sennacherib. That was in 700. And so we see that Nineveh has kind of gone back to their old ways. They are powerful. Um, They revel in their power. Um, We also see that Nahum is written to Judah. And so Judah, where we pick up with them, they're vulnerable. They're surrounded by Assyria. They're this small little piece piece of land with Assyria basically all around it this massive powerhouse that is known for their cruelty, their exile of of the nations around them. Um, At the time of the writing of Nahum, it's actually underneath one of the most powerful of the rulers of Assyria, Ashurbanipal. I hope that's how you say it. But he was one of the most powerful. Um, And so to even think about Assyria falling is completely unthinkable. And 40 years after Nahum prophesies this, it completely falls apart. Um, and that is the context into which Nahum is writing. He is bringing, he's talking about the bringing down of Nineveh, and the listeners of Judah would have said, yeah, right, there's no way. It's just not possible. I mean, this would be like if we think about if in 40 years the United States has completely fallen apart, and we are not a single government, we are um, basically lost to history, because that's what happened to Nineveh 
about 40 years after this, and it was completely shocking and completely unthinkable. Um, I mean, if you think about it, most of us probably only even know the name of Nineveh because of the Bible. Um, I can't say that outside of reading about Jonah, I really knew who, what Nineveh was. I mean, certainly you run across it occasionally in history, but I mean, that was like the most powerful nation of the world. This is who he's writing to. His name is also writing to a people who were spiritually compromised. And that's important as we go into these passages of judgment. Um, they are living under the rule of Manasseh, who was a loyal vassal of Assyria. He brought in all kinds of horrific idol worship, even, um, even sacrificing his own son uh, in, in one of the rituals. He set up idols within the temple, and, the, and most of the people kind of followed right along with him. And so Nahum is writing um, in this context, and he is writing about the downfall of Nineveh. And so the question is, well, who would have believed Nahum's message? The remnant would have. The true Israel would have. Those who take their refuge in Yahweh. That's who would have believed this. So as we continue into Nahum 2 and 3, the theme of the whole book is one thing. Because this is one oracle. It's meant to actually be done orally. Like the whole thing done orally, which is why I actually encouraged um, I encourage folks to actually read the whole thing at one sitting because that's how it would have been done, is it would have been out loud and it would have been in one, in one fell swoop. This is in many ways a sequel to Jonah. And, and some scholars actually say that it forms, along with Jonah, actually forms a commentary on Exodus 34, 6-7. And Exodus 34, 6-7 is where God actually reveals himself to Moses when Moses asks to see God's glory and God, all of God's glory passes in front of him and God hides him uh, in the cleft in the rock. And this is what God says of himself. He says, the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And if in both Jonah and Nahum actually reference that verse, and um, you actually see how Jonah really shows us that first part. When we, read, when we read the story of Jonah, we saw that he was the Lord. He was merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I and mean, that's actually why Jonah gets mad. He's like, I knew you were a God who showed mercy. I knew you were a God. That's why he got mad was because of that. But then in Nahum, what we see is the other side of that. The, the inevitable other side is that God will by no means clear the guilty. He must punish sin because he is good, which we saw in Nahum 1. He is good, therefore he will judge all that is all that will disfigure or mar his good creation. Okay, so now we have all this background. We're kind of back up to speed. Let's actually read the passage of Nahum. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk our way through it. I'll read a little bit, comment a little bit. And we're just going to kind of work our way through it so that we can just let it wash over us a little bit. Um, prophecies are often meant to be impression, like leave impressions on us, not necessarily give us information, but just to sort of give us this, like let it wash over us, like a, almost like a feeling of, oh, that's God's wrath. Or you know, that, that's really kind of what we're seeing here. So let's walk into this a little bit. So I'm going to pick up actually at the end of Nahum 1.15 where um, he's talking to Judah. 
and then I'll pick into, I'll go into two. And I am reading from ESV tonight. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now Nahum 2. The scatterer has come up against you. So he's speaking to, to Nineveh at this point. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all of your strength. It's almost as though he's taunting them and saying, man up, here comes God Almighty. Are you ready for this? And of course the answer is, no, you don't, have, you don't stand a chance. Verse 2, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men, this is talking about the Lord's mighty men who are, who are coming against Nineveh. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. This is the strongest kind of, of spear there is. And so they're ready for it. And you can picture they're red, they're scarlet coming after you. Um, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. Another way to uh, translate that is actually he commands his officers. The Lord commands his officers. They stumble as they go because they're going so hard and so fast. And we're going to see in a minute they're slaying so many. They're just stumbling because they're going. They're going as fast as they can to the battle. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. So the battle is in full force at this point. And then we see the river gates are opened. So evidently Nineveh was surrounded by rivers. This was one of their glories where all of the waterworks and dams that were put around the city. And that is, in fact, in history, that's one of the ways in which they fell was the, they let the water out and it flooded the city. And so the river gates are opened. The palace melts away. So that's their power and their glory. Just, it just goes down the drain is literally what this means. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her, her slave girl is lamenting. So now it's comparing Nineveh to uh, as though it's a woman being carried off, which is actually exactly what they did to the people that they conquered. Her slave girls are lamenting and moaning like doves, beating their breast. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away, just going down the drain. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. So now the plunderers are being plundered. There is no end of the treasure of the wealth of all the precious things. And then look how we have this double, it doubles up. We had halt, halt, plunder, plunder. And now we have desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguishes in the loins, all faces grow pale. So they are completely demoralized by what they see. And then Nahum goes on with a taunt. This next little pink is actually a taunt. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion is Nineveh. In fact, in many of their, um, their pictures and their iconography, they represented their kings with lions. And so this question of where is his den, where is it, where, where, it's this, like, this, this, um, this uh, great city is gone. You can't even find it anymore. And so he says, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey, but his dens is, his, and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
the Lord of hosts. Host is the, is the, is the military force. And so he is, he is the divine warrior. And God says, I am against you, which is really terrifying. If you kind of let that sink in, that is a terrifying thing to hear. He says, I will burn your chariots in smoke. That's the strongest, most powerful piece of your weaponry. I'm going to bring it down to smoke. The swords will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. The messengers would be those who would go from Assyria to go and collect their, to, to go take their messages of destruction or to go and collect their um, the, um, the unfair taxes and the tribute that they, would, that they would require. And so we see this huge reversal. We had Israel at, at the beginning of 115, or at 115 saying, you know, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Nineveh's down. And now Nineveh doesn't have any messengers to send out. Like it is completely, they are completely brought down. And so let's keep going, because remember, this is meant to be read in full. So let's go into Nineveh 3. As we get into Nineveh 3, as you read this, this is going to be... So the other day, Melvin and I were watching... So Melvin's my husband. We like to watch YouTube clips. So we're watching YouTube clips the other day. And um, we start watching this clip from um, Wicked with Idina Menzel singing Defying Gravity. Um, Great song. I told Melvin, I, was like, I just commented to Melvin, you know, this is a really hard song to sing. And he's like, really? Why? <laughs> Listen to it. And so she starts singing, and, you know, she's got this big, powerful voice. And as the song keeps going, you know what happens with it. The key just keeps changing up and up and up. And then you get to the end of the song, and it's like this, like, major key change. And she is just, you know, just, she is just singing. And she is defying gravity with her voice because it's just so powerful. And you know, like so often in any songs in Broadway, sometimes even in worship music, you get to the last, you get to the last chorus, and what do we do? We change the key, we lift the key up so that it just increases the, you know, everybody sort of lifts up with it, and it's this emotional big impact. That's what happens in Nineveh 3. It's the same sort of thing, it's just everything is heightened and, intense and intensified. So let's read it. Chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city. And it literally says the city of bloods, plural. There's just so much blood because they have created, they have caused so much bloodshed across the earth. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. Already you're seeing all, no end. And then we get to this, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheels, the galloping horses, the bounding chariots. Evidently in the Hebrew, that's like two words. It's like crack whip, rumble wheel, gallop horse, bound chariot. Like Nahum is evidently known for this. It makes me really want to learn Hebrew. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but... It's like, like you can feel like you're in, the, you're in the battle. Horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, host of slain. You see what's happened to their host? Their host, their military force is slain. Heaps of corpses, bo dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. When I took notes on this, I just wrote in my notes, just so much. It's just so much. Like there's just bodies everywhere. And all, 
for the countless whorings, you see how it's the countless bodies goes with the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and de of deadly charms. The charms there is actually referring more to sorcery. In fact, I think the New American Standard actually uh, translates it as sorcery. And so it's not so much of being charming as of drawing others into idolatry, into detestable idolatry is really the picture here. You kind of see this picture, you do see this picture in Revelation. It talks about Babylon and Assyria sort of was wrapped up in that too. Um, is, just, is, just, is, is shown as a prostitute of, the, of, of a woman who draws, who draws them into their uh, destruction, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. I mean, you think about what's going on when, when Nahum was writing this, what was going on with the people of Israel or the people of Judah at this time. They were being drawn into the same worship. They were going down the same path. That's actually what happened to Samaria. Part of the reason why Jews and um, Samaritans didn't get along is that what happened when Assyria came in, they took all the, the, the people who lived in Israel and they took them away and then sent back a few and then made sure that they, they mixed with some of the surrounding areas. And so their worship became this blended thing. It was no longer a, a, true, um, a true Judaism, as it were. Okay, so let's keep going. So we have, so in verse 6, oh, I'm sorry, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, he says for the second time, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So it's exactly what they've already been doing, and now it's just put on, put on um, display for all. I will throw filth at you. That filth, that word, is actually the same word that the Old Testament used for idols, the detestable idols. That's the word that, that's used here. And I will treat you with contempt, and I will make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and will say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I see comforters for you? So everyone's gone. They leave her. And so let's keep, we're gonna, uh, let's keep going. Verse 8, are you better than Thebes? This is a city that they brought down just a few years before. Are you better than Thebes who sat by the Nile with water around her, a rampart of the sea, and water her wall, cush her strength, Egypt too, and without limit, Putin, Libyan were her helpers? Yet she became an exile. She went to captivity. She went to captivity because of Assyria. And now Assyria is being brought down in exactly the same way. Her infants were dashed into pieces at the head of every street. That's what the Ninevites did. For her honored men, lots were cast. They were all put into slavery and traded for trinkets. All of her great men were bound in chains. That is what Assyria did. That's what Nineveh did. Verse 11, you will also become drunken. You will be disoriented, incapacitated. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. But notice that they're not taking refuge in Yahweh. They're taking refuge in their own strength. And so look at what happens to their strength, their fortresses in verse 12. All their fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. This is just easy prey. It just falls right down. You can think of Jericho a little bit. Just all their defenses just falls right down. Behold your troops are women in your midst. That means those who are untrained for battle. The gates of your land are wide open to their enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. And then we taunt again. So they're in this completely demoralized state. And he says, draw the waters for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortars. Take hold of the brick molds. Do something about this. Man up, he says. 
Then verse 15, there will be fire, there will the fire devour you and the sword will cut you off. It will devour you like locust. Multiply yourselves like locusts. Multiply the grasshopper. You increased your merchants, your economic wealth. It's not helping you now, is it? More than the stars in the heaven. But the locust spreads its wings and flies away. Even their great people, their princes, are like grasshoppers. Their scribes are like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. So all who would lead them, they're gone. They just leave. And so Assyria is left, or Nineveh is left, completely defenseless. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Where are they? Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to help them. You see that scattered again. They, they, so the scattering is complete now. The beginning of chapter 2, the scatterer has come. End of chapter 3, they're scattered. It's done. With none to gather them, there is no easing of your hurt. Your wound is grievous. That means it is life-threatening. There is no getting over this. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. They celebrate because you're a downfall. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? That's a lot, isn't it? That is the oracle. That is the burden that Nahum carried. They are completely gone. There's just nothing there because their wickedness was complete and absolute. So, so we've worked our way through the passage. We've seen it. We've let it wash over us. Now let's go back, and we're going to pick up. We're just going to pick up three pieces just to, just to see how this oracle of judgment actually helps us understand what we see in the gospel and we see um, in different passages in the, New Te- in the New Testament. And so the first thing we see as we look at this judgment is that this judgment, this justice, is fitting. It is absolutely matched to what the Assyrians and the Ninevites did and were like. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one says, that will he also reap. And that is exactly what we see with Assyria. I mean, just to hit a couple high points. The scatterers were scattered. They were known throughout the world for exiling. They would come into a nation. They would take over. They would take their people. They'd move them somewhere else and completely just destroy their culture, everything. They would, that was what they did everywhere they went. The plunderers are plundered. They went. They were known for nation to nation. They exacted tribute everywhere they went. They were some of the. Um, they were experts at psychological warfare. They were so cruel that you saw them coming. You just said, "Okay, take whatever you want," because that was what they were like. They were arrogant, um, and they 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 humiliated. And we see what happens to them in that passage. The passage in three where it says the. Um, the skirts lifted over your face. That part I find very uncomfortable to read. But that is exactly what they did. When you look at the, the what they did to the nations that they, they took over, that is exactly what they did. They are humiliated in the way that they are humiliated, or that they humiliated. And then we see that the lion's den has become a desolate lair for a wild beast in that, um, in that past, the, the taunt song where it compares them to the lions and where is your den. 
Zephaniah 2, 13 through 15 actually sheds a little light on this. It says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, and all kinds of beasts, even the owls and the hedgehogs, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold. For her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. You see how I am? That should ring some bells if that's how God describes himself. And yet this was Assyria. They said, I am, and there is no one else. What desolation, what a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. So they were a den of lions, and now they have literally become a place for the lions. They are completely desolate. And so what this shows us, though, as we walk through these, it is uncomfortable, yes, but at the same time, we see that God is not vindictive or capricious. He sees the sin, and he justly and rightly meets out the correct response to it. It is always just, and it is always fitting. It is never too much. It is never too little. It is exactly now, you might be thinking, but wait a second, I thought Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said, um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, remember that, like we talked about last week, that, that's God's job. God's job is to judge, not ours, and therefore our rules and his rules are a little different. We are meant to, to trust him and wait on his timing because his timing will always be perfect. His amount of judgment will always be exactly what is due. So we see that he has a fitting judgment. The other thing we see throughout this passage is that we see that it is a comprehensive judgment. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short. All have sinned. So every single human being on this planet, we have all sinned. And we see throughout this whole thing with 2 and 3 is that for sin comes a complete a comprehensive judgment. All the way through this, we see this comprehensiveness, the completeness of God's judgment. I actually made a list just of, um, from chapter one and chapter three, the, the, um, the number, the quantity, and the quality of God's judgment all the way through. I'm just gonna read just a couple. In 1.8 it said, the overflowing flood will make a complete end. In 1.9, complete end. 1.15, utterly cut off. In 3.1, we have no end of the prey. In 3.3, we had bodies without end, a host of slain, heaps of, cor of corpses. Um, all who look will, be, will shrink. I mean, we could just keep going. I mean, 3.15, it says, multiply, multiply, but you will become um, like locusts. Um, 3.18, there is none to gather. 3.19, there is no easing. You see, it's all of this, this complete and absolute language there. God's judgment is comprehensive. No little thing will be allowed through, which is terrifying. It is terrifying if we let that kind of, if we let that sink into ourselves, because we should, as we look at this, we probably see a little bit of ourselves in Assyria. Yeah, we're a little less cruel, and we're, like Anna likes to say, we're cute. Um, but at the end of the day, we're still sinners. And all sin, because we are sinning against a holy God, that magnifies it. 
and it's also over eternity. Um, in my in my listening, I listened to one pastor who who put it this way, who described how even though some, sometimes we feel like, well, that's just not a big sin, but he gave the example of a plumb line for a building, and so if if something is off by one degree for a short building, it's not going to be a big deal. It's just going to be it's just going to be a little off. It'll be all right. But if you build a skyscraper that is off by even one degree, what's going to happen to that skyscraper? It's going to fall down. It will not be stable. We are made for eternity. So even being slightly off God's mark, it is not a stable life. It cannot be, it cannot be born. It also means that it shows us ultimately, though, that God is good because God will not allow anything that disfigures or mars his good creation. He is going to make an absolute and complete end to it. He is, um, in verse 2, it said that the Lord is restoring the majesty of Nineveh. And, or excuse me, sorry, different story. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Judah. And the only way he can do that is by also bringing down Nineveh. He has to destroy it. In Isaiah 11, 9, it talks, um, when he's talking about um, the, at the end, the kingdom that, that Christ will reign over, it says, Isaiah 11, 9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So he will make a complete end of anything that hurt and disfigures his creation or his people. And the other thing, though, is that this should probably make us a little nervous because we're like, ooh, but I still have sin. What about that? Well, remember in, in chapter 1, those who take refuge in the Lord, Jesus takes that. He takes that sin for us. And that actually brings us to our last, is that we see in this passage that God's judgment is finite. It is a finite judgment. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he's saying, it is finished. All of this wrath that we see in three, in two and three, it's done. It is completely taken care of. It is completely done. It is finished in him. He took the full measure of all of this on himself. Um, Psalm 46 says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots without fire, with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So when we take our refuge in God through Christ Jesus, we know that he has made a complete end to all of that wrath. He, or he has, and he will then make a complete end to all of the all of the, uh, the wickedness and anything that hurts his people or his creation in all of the world. He is creating a new order. And the only way that is possible, though, is through Christ and through what Christ has done. So either we bear the brunt of this, of this wrath, rightly, 
in, that is completely fitting, that is completely comprehensive, or Christ has. And if Christ has borne it for us, it's done. It's over. It is completely taken, taken. And to close, Ephesians 2, 1 says it, says it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were deserving of everything we see in 2 and 3, in Nahum 2 and 3, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised, up with, and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we see his grace because Jesus took all of that that we've read in two and three for us because God chose to. He gave that to us. We did not deserve it, but he gave it to us. And so we see how in understanding God's wrath in, in Nahum two and three, we understand his grace and his love for us that much better. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much that your word is true. I thank you that in Christ Jesus, it is finished. I thank you that Jesus took on himself all of our sin, and he will make a complete end to it. Lord, I do pray that as we go from here, that you would just remind us of your truth, that you would draw your word into our hearts and just show us what is good, that we might know Christ as our Savior and as our Lord as we go from here. We do pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.